forever. Dog. How do you do that with your eye? You mind me asking? I mean, me, I understand, but how do you do that? I had, in fact, trained myself to move just one eye. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or a series of commercials for Jack in the Box, where I played breakfast. Our guest this episode is Kevin Pollack. Kevin is an accomplished actor, an accomplished stand-up, a master impressionist, and probably the actor that goes from comedy back to drama and back to comedy more often than anybody else we've had on the show thus far. And we're going to talk about that as well as A Few Good Men, The Usual Suspects, Avalon, a lot of Johnny Carson talk. And we begin with an epic Rich Little story. I'll let Kevin tell it. This episode goes a little longer than our usual one hour, but I swear to God, there was nothing I could cut. Please welcome Kevin Pollack. Kevin, thank you so much for for doing this. I I really appreciate this. I've been on a, I've been doing a a quiet Kevin festival in my house and I have a lot of Uh questions. Um, No, it's good. It's good. Um, It's been told that I, I need to ask you for not all of your rich little stories, but your first rich little story. I don't know that I have that many. Uh, the first one is certainly the best. Your your encounter with him when you were a, a young comic and impressionist uh, yep. coming mm-hmm. up, and he was he was the name. He was. I mean, uh, he was the- more than the name. I mean, he's where I started out uh, late seventies with Dana Carvey and a host of others up in San Francisco in that extraordinary comedy scene. And uh, if you would ask either one of us back then as well as today, you know, who we were able to draw from uh, in terms of certain impersonations, it was Rich Little. He always had the best sort of um, technique. I don't know that he was ever funny to my generation of stand-ups, um, but he was unparalleled in uh, in abilities. So. Yeah, he even had a television show called Copycats. Anyways, we, you know, we, I think we learned, we both learned our Carson. You got to hear someone else do an impression first, most of the time. Right. In order to find the sort of, ah, that's how you get in. And so, yeah, Rich Little was um, the door opener for a lot of those. So when I was 17 and I'd been performing, um, a, a comedy album lip sync act from age 10 to 16, all through middle school and high school. Wait, I'm so sorry. What's a comedy album lip sync act to clarify? Yeah, it's not self-explanatory at all. You're right. Let me do most of the math. Um, so I, uh, they didn't put in the liner notes of Bill Cosby's first album that he would go on to be the most successful serial rapist in history. So I didn't know that. And so I, uh, as a 10-year-old, was mesmerized by his first comedy album. And one routine in particular uh, uh, about Noah and the Ark. So it was- I love, I love the Noah. God help me. I love that. What the fuck's yeah. a cubit? I, I love, I know he never said what the fuck, but- the, He certainly the, didn't. Oh my God, the cubit. Yep. Because he, he kept it real clean, I guess. So good He was him. squeaky clean, but one in real life would certainly ask what the fuck, in fact, is a cubit. So uh, at 10, I had memorized that bit as well as the whole album. My mother caught me doing it, uh, literally. Uh, um, 
as she came home, I was, well, basically, my mom brought home this album. She played it in the living room out of the seven-foot-wide stereo hi-fi, a piece of furniture. Uh, this man telling these stories from this record made my parents laugh uncontrollably. And at 10, I dialed into, ooh, I would like to have that effect on them because I'd never seen them laugh like that. Uh, it was almost unnerving as if they were openly weeping. Um, so when no one was around, I would listen to the comedy album over and over and over and over and over again um, without ever discussing it with anyone. And eventually, because there were no interactive games, uh, we had just invented fire, truth be told, uh, sure. I would stand in front of this piece of furniture and want to be the person telling the stories. I didn't know what lip sync was. I didn't think that I had invented it. I was just playing. And she caught me standing in front of the stereo doing what would be considered lip syncing this routine. But really, I was just pretending I was the person telling these stories and clearing my throat at the same time as it was happening on the album. And my mom uh, uh, scared me, but laughed uncontrollably and said, you're doing that for the Zookers at Passover. So the first performance live in front of people was at the Zookers at Passover on their white painted brick fireplace. Were you the about, youngest at the table? Please tell me you were. Uh, probably. So, uh, and before we look, I looked for the Yaffe comb and I stood on the white painted uh, fireplace and lip synced the, the No and the Ark routine and everyone fell out. I mean, it was a brilliant co comedy piece from his album that I was just a precocious 10 year old lip syncing. So the combination of those elements made me uh, hilarious. So I, I did it all through middle school and high school. Back then we called it junior high. Um, and I started doing impressions, I guess, shortly before I stopped doing that routine at age 16, and one of which was Peter Falk. So I read in the newspaper that Peter, uh, Rich Little was coming to town, and I thought, what if I dressed as Peter Falk and went to the show, and at the right moment, in Mr. Little's act, I'd never seen a comedian live. Um, what if I went down to the stage and did a little Columbo and just got a wink or a thumbs up? Wouldn't that be great? That was the uh, seven-year-old, seventeen-year-old's plan. So uh, this is at the Circle Star Theater. I, it's not there anymore. It's about twenty-five hundred seats in the round, in the circle, slightly slowly rotating stage, which was never a good idea for stand-up, but um, <laughs> or anyone, or anyone really. Prince um, could pull it off, but that's pretty much it. Sure, and I remember seeing Sammy Davis Jr. there when I was twelve. I mostly remember just thinking he can do everything. I want to do everything, and then did nothing about that. Um, as in no singing or dancing lessons. And I also remember him saying, you folks in the back taking pictures, come to the front, babe. I look like half a matzo ball from back then. Um, so I went with my uh, friend uh, Larry to the Rich Little uh, performance dressed as Columbo. So it was a white shirt, black skinny tie, uh, his father's over, my friend Larry's father's overcoat, black pants, dark shoes, little stubby cigar. I was good to go. And I waited, maybe it was, let's just say for memory's sake, uh, it was about 40 minutes into Mr. Little's show. 
where he had finished this long piece, he was settling into the audience's uh, massive applause, crossing to a stool, picking up a small towel and dabbing his forehead. And I thought, this is it. So I get up out of my seat, and as I take one step, something pulls me back to the seat. It's not my friend Larry. It's the belt on his father's overcoat that is now stuck in the chair of where I was seated. Uh, Columbo never had a belt to memory, but this one did. And I remember I looked down, and I had a nanosecond to decide. And I've noticed since then in life, in that fight-or-flight moment, it is uh, flight. In this case, it was fight, and I ripped the belt off of the jacket so that I could continue on my way down the aisle. By the time I got to the stage edge, it was elevated, so he's a good 10 feet up. Uh, He was crossing away from the stool back to address the audience, and I just started shouting, Mr. Little, excuse me, sir, I hate the body. I'm sorry, sir. And he sees me, and he comes over and says, look at this, ladies and gentlemen, Lieutenant Colombo, and he lowers the microphone to me. What? Yeah, that was not... I didn't know what was going to happen. Again, I just wanted to do that, have him acknowledge that I was talented with some sort of gesture and send me on my way. I don't know why it never crossed my mind that something more than that could happen. I I uh, ran through the possibility of, of less than that happening, <laughs> but not more. Escorting out by security. Absolutely. I just wanted, I don't know, I don't know what I was thinking. I was 17 years old. <laughs> Also, of the, you know, 28,000 stand-up shows I've done since then, no one has ever come out to the stage yelling at me. And if they had, they would not have received the microphone from me the way I was. He wasn't handing it to me. He was lowering it to me so the audience could hear me better. Um, so, uh, again, I wasn't ready for that. So, it, 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 I went into a little bit of Columbo spiel. Um, and I got some laughs, uh, more than Rich, I guess, wanted me to. He pulled the microphone back to himself, and then he started doing Peter Falk's Lieutenant Columbo, which was not in his uh, quiver, and it was faltering pretty quick. And really? Well, uh, yeah, and I noticed, he noticed that I noticed, uh, and he... Again, this is all happening lightning fast. He throw he puts the mic back down to me for me to speak. Now, because his Peter Falk was off, I'd never seen him even try it, but it was off, so it threw me off. And now my Peter Falk is probably an octave higher. And for some inexplicable reason, I'm sure to either one of us, he says, come on up on stage, Lieutenant. Wow. We're going further with this. Instead of this horrible moment occurring and being the end of it, come on up on stage, uh, Lieutenant. So I walk around to the side where there's some steps, and I walk on stage, and for the first and only time, I have a tunnel vision experience where I just see him, and 2,500 people are gone. The most I'd ever performed of was probably 300 at the school assemblies, and certainly not on a slowly rotating circular stage. So he says, what can I do for you again? 
and I say, well, uh, let me just say, Mr. Little, that the wife and I are big fans. And when we saw in the newspaper that you was coming to town, we bought tickets, sir, and we've been waiting for this night. At the last second, the Mrs. Falls Hill, she can't come, and she told me that if I don't get your autograph, she's not letting me back in the house, sir. I hate to trouble you. Sorry, folks. And he takes the microphone uh, back. Again, he had just, you know, sort of put it in front of me, and then he takes control of it again. and and. And at that moment, decides to do heckler comeback line number 17. Uh, this guy better watch out or I'll do Rin Tin Tin and he'll be the tree. So I'm going to guess for the majority of your listeners, an explanation is needed. Rin Tin Tin was a movie dog, I think in the 40s, but certainly yeah. in the 50s. Uh, and he was a movie star, but he was a dog. But and, it's also, uh, by the way, it's also the early 1970s. This is not a super timely reference for the early 1970s either now, is it? No, no, no. It's, okay. it's 1974 and it's nowhere near a timely reference in 1974. He's so dating never himself. mind my audience, your fucking audience, that there's no audience in 1974 is not like, but, that's not in the zeitgeist. But I would also, uh, you're 100% correct. I didn't, I was not the demographic in the audience. I think he was, in fact, performing. He he knew his audience. He yeah. skewed older, certainly. E even then, he skewed older. So they did get his reference, and he did get a laugh. And while they're laughing, I hand him the pen and the pad, and he he goes to remove the cap from the pen as if it were like a felt pen, I guess, and put the, the back end into the top as one would do with a felt pen and go to sign. But it was a ballpoint pen that I'd handed him. And now the middle, uh, I don't know, copper ink container, the back of it is scratching on the pad. Uh, there's no ballpoint anywhere near this pad at this point. And he says, oh, look at this. Lieutenant gave me a broken pen, which played right into Colombo, uh, always a bit disheveled. And I went with the improv, even at 17. There was some skill. And I said, ah, uh, oh, geez, did I do that? I'm sorry, sir. I had no idea. Maybe I have another pen. And I start patting my pockets. And he says, well, I tell you what, Lieutenant, why don't you come back after the show? There'll be plenty of pens. Uh, and I'd be happy to sign an autograph uh, for the wife to, uh, so you could go back home, of course. Ladies and gentlemen, Lieutenant Colombo, he says to the audience, and they applaud in unison, very loudly. I take a bow. I, I get the hell off stage and go back to my seat. Now, I want to just say, if while I was on stage, he had said, hey, kid, you're really talented. What's your name? Like maybe I wanted in a fantasy. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I could have broken character. I was so out of my element on stage with him uh, that I could, I think I could only stay in character you in terms of my, there was no in terms of channel. my, yeah, yeah. In terms of my comfort level, I was, I was definitely much better off staying in character. Thank goodness. That's what happened. So I go back and sit down and you know, my world has changed clearly. Of course. I've, I, I've just been on stage in front of 2,500 people with the master uh, impersonator celebrity impressionist in the world, and he's asked me to come backstage after the show. Now, I assume it is so that 
uh, I can join him on his private jet where we will be winging it to show business. Given. Where he will introduce me to the heads of state, uh, the, the heads of the five families, and uh, my career at 17, my, my schooling career is over. I'm now entering show business. And you are safely ensconced in the Illuminati and everything's all set thanks to Rich Little. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, and all of this is discussed with my friend Larry back at our seats. <laughs> and um, he's so excited for me, even though I've made it clear to him, we may never speak again. <laughs> so uh, now I'm applauding and laughing. I'm I'm now the number one fan of Rich Little that has ever lived. Sure. Uh, through the rest of the show, the show ends. I find my way to a backstage area where I've never been in any theater. And when I get there, there's about twenty people in line. This autograph line. Now, as the kid who got up out of his chair and interrupted the the headliner's show, do you think I, A, bypassed this ridiculous line and went right up to the front to begin my career with my friend, Rich Little, or I got in the end of the line like a, a well-heeled 17-year-old? You know, it's a tough call because you've, you, you've been going back and forth between just visions of grandiosity mm-hmm. and then a remarkable short-sighted humility Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and say end of the line. End of the line, indeed. Okay. And very well observed and articulated in terms of a recap of what's happened thus far. And I thank uh-huh. you for it. I'm trying to host here. You know. I appreciate that. Um, so I do wait in line. And a few people gather behind me. So as I get a little closer, I see Rich Little will greet the person. Hi, what's your name? Steve? He signs something to Steve. Steve is kept moving past him from his right to his left. Thank you very much for coming to the show. And he hands Steve the autograph and immediately shifts back to his right for the next person and says, hi, what's your name? And this is like a conveyor belt happening. He's not engaging with anyone beyond, hi, what's your name? Signs the autograph. Thanks for coming to the show. And they move and fuck off to Buffalo. And it comes to my turn. Hi. Oh, hey, there he is. I get one of those. Hmm. What what's the name? I said, Kevin. He signs to Kevin, hands me the autograph and says, thanks for coming to the show. And I fucked off to Buffalo and he greets the next person in line. So you could imagine uh, what was shattered in that very bizarre outcome to, again, I can't take anything away from his generosity of bringing me on stage. The Given, generosity. Obviously. Uh, of stopping his show and and letting me talk from the edge of the stage. All of that was so uh, confirming and affirming all that I really wanted, right? I I made up the rest of it in my chair (laughs) in terms of what was going to happen after the show. I got so much more out of my evil plan uh, during that moment that I I didn't really feel how crushed how crushing of a moment it was until you know i got through the denial of um <laughs> of my feelings for for several days um i mean look when i got back to larry who was waiting for me uh he wasn't surprised that i had not in fact been flown to show business he was not shocked to see you actually return right to him right. yeah okay yeah i mean he was 
was happy for me that I got to meet Rich Little backstage. Given that sure. I got an autograph, which again, for the record, I definitely wanted. Yeah. Um, I just didn't take him literally. Uh, <laughs> when he said, come backstage and I'd be happy to give you an autograph. And nothing more. And not a word more, young man. <laughs> have you run into Rich Little since? So I have um I I have uh at the Tonight Show when uh I hadn't been on yet, but I was in the audience watching and he was the guest host, and I sort of lamely waved from the stands after the show. Uh, and I was probably 20, so it wasn't too far after. And I, I, for some reason, thought, of course, he remembers me. And he waved back. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of people standing there waving, yelling, Mr. Little, Mr. Little. So it wasn't like I was in a gaggle of uh, idiots. So I, I, I somewhat convinced myself we had a moment. Um, but then only two years ago, maybe? A uh, blind circumstance on the streets of Hollywood, and uh, uh, in, in route to a restaurant with my better half, and she and I just ran into Rich Little. And um, of course, this is a whole career for me later. And he did know who I was and said, "Oh my goodness, I'm so happy for your success." And I followed and this and that. And I said, "So, do you remember when I came on stage at the Circle Star Theater as a 17-year-old as Lieutenant Colombo?" And he said, "Oh my god, was that you?" Holy so that shit. was the first time he put those moments together. Oh my god. And our our worlds connected once more. But um but I, you know, listen, if he allowed a total stranger from the audience to come up and thinking all these these years later, kill about four minutes that he wouldn't have to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if that was part of his shtick, you know, I, I signed on for 90. They got 86. <laughs> right. That I can relate to anything to eat time. I mean, I don't do <laughs> I don't do crowd work, but I can appreciate the time suck that it provides. So. You know, um, it wasn't shocking to me that he, you know, from 17 to 60 uh, in, in the passing 43 years, he, he hadn't connected those dots. Hey, everybody, Tim Heidecker here with huge news. Office Hours Live recorded another episode live it was one of our great ones with the great Rory Scovel, who's got a new special out on MAX. Oh, yeah. And the Trinity's here, DJ Doug Pound. Yes, hello. And Victor Berger the Fourth. Hi, hi, hi. Can't we, wait for the fifth. We enjoy the heck out of doing the show, and so will you. If you find us on the podcast app of your choice, now. I was watching Misery Loves Comedy, which is the the documentary you you made um, about um, uh, directorial debut. Yes, the connection between mental health and comedy. I'm going to put it in very very broad strokes. There, yeah. The premise um, was: Do you have to be miserable to be funny? 
miserable isn't it's it's in the title you use a different phrase very early or rather you a few people read uh the central question of the documentary Hmm. which is the connection between comedy and emotionally questionable people end quote (laughs) right so so but i want to be clear that I, i i i wasn't trying to delve into the vast uh field of mental health uh, no, no, no. And 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 by the way, um, you know, I think the producers might have hoped I would. Right. Um, when they came to me, this this documentary was not my idea. I did come up with the title, Misery Loves Comedy, and I did come up with the majority of the questions um that would be put to all these performers. And then I did edit the film by myself for 10 months, which was daunting. Mm. Um, in fact, I'd still be editing now, I think, if there wasn't a Sundance submission deadline, which we <laughs> premiered at, I'm overly, if not absurdly proud to say. You're appropriately um, proud. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was the it was the apex. I mean, it was the best a film like this was gonna get, was a, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's interesting because it's 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 niche, but it's also star studded. So well, I made sure of that. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, it's it's <laughs> it, there's an interesting sort of uh, paradox yeah. there in like, yes, granted, documentaries don't, as a rule, knock them dead at the box office. But when's the last time you saw a documentary with this much a list talent crammed into it? You kind of yeah, had your you cake and eat it too. Yeah, it's interesting if if the timing, which you know, it's difficult in anyone's life, let alone career, to get all the luck. I've had ridiculous fortunate in timing throughout my career. The the absence of a, a Netflix or a streaming home for documentaries in 2015, um, you know, I, I look at that as a missed opportunity because I am so obsessed with documentaries on streaming platforms. I think a lot of people are in the last couple of years. Um, so yeah, no, it didn't. It didn't find a home. It did find a home on Amazon Prime, and I should stop. Which is where I watched it, and it suggesting. is there. Yeah, I no, I I, I will uh, full uh, wholeheartedly endorse the film. You you structure it really well. You you have everyone talk about their parents and talk about whether or not their parents were funny, whether or not their parents were fucked up, uh, and then they go into their own childhoods and 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 sort of sort of like the. Uh, a biography with a bunch of different uh, subjects. Um, yeah, I had a friend of mine, Dylan King, who's a wonderful editor, who uh, looked at it and su- he's the one who suggested maybe some uh, chapters because I had everyone answering. You know, I had I don't know sixty hours God. of of filmed interviews for mm-hmm. a you know ninety minute film. So he said, you know, to give it some structure, you might. Because there was no script, there right. was no no uh, story, I had to invent one. And when he suggested chapters, because I'd asked these people a lot of the same questions, then I could, one chapter is called Bombs Away, and it's just people talking about bombing. Right. One chapter, chapter I think you're referring to, uh, Who's Your Daddy and or Mommy, right. um, refers to the kind of support or lack of uh, from your parents, yeah. And I want to hop right over to that. Now- I, I was going to ask, were your parents supportive of a child who starts stand-up at the age of 10? But, I mean, I guess they have to be or else you don't get two gigs. Um, if my mom had not uh, 
in the moment humiliated me when catching me lip syncing Bill Cosby's album at age 10 and announced you, you're going to perform that at the Zookers for Passover. I don't know how long it would have taken me to get up in front of people and do any sort of performance, to be honest with you. That so was it's, all it's, her doing. So it's it's beyond supportive to the point of- Yes. Uh, uh, it was stage mom one time. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. She got uh, but, me but, booked at the Zookers for Passover. But at a Seder, so you know you can't really yeah. call her you know, Mama and Rose I'm, necessarily. No. I do want to be clear. The Zookers were our first- uh, cousins. So it wasn't a difficult booking that mom <laughs> pulled up. And you're, I mean, not for nothing, you're doing Old Testament material. That can't go wrong. I mean, it it really dovetailed beautifully. It was a really spot on booking on her part. Yeah. So so two years later, you see Sammy Davis Jr. That's really interesting. And 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 Sammy, also a very gifted impressionist, uh, yeah. uh, incidentally. Um, and and you, you said... Just now, I, I, I scribbled it down. You said, I want to do everything. You look at Sammy Davis Jr. and said, I want to do everything. Because here's a guy. He made was, it look so easy. He really and he was did. so He's brilliant. Really the most effortless of that yes. generation. It's hard to think of a more effortless performer. And could do everything and did everything. Um, yeah. And the weird connection I have to him is my first Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Yeah. Um. I don't know that you want to jump that far ahead, but um, well, yeah, that's get, fine. Let's go ahead. I did get bumped from my first Tonight Show appearance, which I had orchestrated uh, masterfully, if not insanely, to just go to the couch as an actor instead of going on as a comedian, where I would, which is how I was first asked to do the Tonight Show. And then um, run the risk of maybe, maybe not be called over to the couch by the Kingmaker. Yeah, so Jim McCauley was the gatekeeper. He was the booker for The Tonight Show of all stand-up comedians. And I'd met him at The Tonight Show when I went as other comedians' guests. I was befriended early on by Seinfeld and Shanling and Paul Reiser. And and so when they would do their Tonight Shows, they would always bring a couple of comics, you know, for backstage riffing and running and stuff. Yeah. And so I met him through them, you know, again, that's a great introduction to a guy like a gatekeeper like Jim McCauley. And then one night at the improv, we were passing each other and I said, hey, Jim, uh, who are you here to see tonight? And he said, well, actually, I just read on the list the guy I was, came to see is canceled and I saw your name on the list. So I thought I would stick around and watch your set. I think you're ready to do the show. <sighs> now, I'd waited since age 10 for that moment. Yeah, of course. And there it was. I was probably 28. I'd been in LA three years. And when he said that to me, without any forethought, the following came out of me. Well, Jim, uh, wow, that's incredible. I can't thank you enough for the notion you've just laid out. Um, I have to say, though, as a fan of the show from age 10, I believe... I'll do best on the show sitting next to Johnny doing my impersonations more so than standing on the star and doing my six minutes as a stand-up. Now, where did you get the balls? <laughs> you know, it was the Rich Little moment and this moment. Those are the two, uh, truly. Uh, I mean, well, there was maybe one or two others. But so I, again, I hadn't thought this through at all. And I just, this just came out of and. I mean, I can honestly and objectively say all these years later, there was some fear that 
I was not going to have the impact on The Tonight Show as a stand-up that I would sitting next to Johnny because as a fan of the show, I knew he loved impersonations and I knew he, he did them himself. Right. And you're also you, you would have put yourself in a position where you wouldn't just hear the audience laugh. We would see the bookends of Johnny and Ed McMahon convulsing over your shit. I, I hear your point. There's a really good visual there of you sitting between these two giants who are cracking yeah. up. But my heroes of Albert Brooks and Don Rickles and Steve Martin. Um, had come out and done their their best at the couch, you know. And so the, that fantasy uh, was in my head, but mostly I knew that I would be best suited for the couch. And so I said to Macaulay, look, I'm also a student of the show, um, having been there, and I know there's a protocol, and you can't bring me out to the couch as an unknown comedian. But I'll tell you, I'm willing to wait till I have a TV show or a movie where you can justify bringing me out as an actor and taking me right to the couch. And then I'll do my impersonations. And the first time I do Peter Falk for Johnny, I think he's going to love it. He's going he's gonna to go nuts. And Jim looked at me like I had just stepped off an alien spacecraft and then recovered and said, well, do you have a TV show or a movie coming out anytime soon? What I did not share with Jim uh, was that I didn't even have an agent to audition for TV shows or movies yet. So I said, well, no, I don't. Um, he said, look, listen, uh, if you want to wait, that's fine. You're only going to get better. I'm not concerned. Uh, we'll keep in touch and we'll see how your pursuit of, of, of a movie or a TV show goes. I, and he said, I can't disagree with you. You would have a greater impact on the couch, your, your abilities. And I also can't disagree with your awareness that that's not going to happen until you have a TV show or a movie. So let's just, you know, I'll see you around and we'll see how it goes. Now, I didn't tell a soul that I had this conversation. Nor should you. Who would you right. tell? you going to go into a, the green room of the comedy store and be like, guys, I just had the funniest conversation with Macaulay. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or anyone I knew. Uh a girlfriend, anyone with a right mind was not going to hear this story for fear that they would say, I'm sorry, you were asked to do The Tonight Show. Well, first of all, no, I wasn't asked to do The Tonight Show. He was going to watch me perform because he said, quote, I think you're ready to do The Tonight Show. I still couldn't get through the conversation without the person taking a rightful position of, you're an idiot, you're an asshole, call Macaulay right now and tell him you'd like to audition for The Tonight Show, you fucking moron. <laughs> um, so I didn't tell anyone. And about a year later, and I would see him on occasion, you know, I continued to go to the Tonight Show with other comedians. I would see him around the improv. Um, and about a year or so later, I got this movie Willow that Ron Howard directed and George Lucas produced. It was enough to justify me coming on the show as an actor, which Macaulay agreed to. And um my first time scheduled to be on the show, Sammy Davis Jr. is the music act. And um, I, as the comedian, was the last act, of course. And uh, Sammy um, not only did two songs, mostly these music acts do one song. Sammy did two, not only did two songs, but went into a third, um, which I'd never seen in my lifetime. 
No. Uh, did four songs. <laughs> and Macaulay came into my dressing room during the third song and said, <laughs> we're going to have to bump you. And I said, of course. And then he said, we'll reschedule. Don't worry. And he left. And I started, I kicked the wall once. I don't know that I started kicking the wall. I think I just kicked it once. The issue is you have to call the 65 people that you called to say, I'm on The Tonight Show tonight. And, and many comedians went through this over the decades. Hundreds, hundreds got bumped. It happened all the time. And so I don't know that I've ever talked to one who wasn't bumped, who eventually ended up on the show. Uh, cut to I'm leaving and I run into Sammy Davis Jr. in a parking lot coming out of The Tonight Show where Carson's car was always parked. And I saw Sammy and he said, I am so Sorry, you kids with the whole shakunk kakunk. And he took pictures, that's a quote. He took pictures <laughs> with my girlfriend and I in the parking lot um, after uh, ruining my life. Uh, temporarily. So when I, temporarily, when I did eventually get on the show with Johnny and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's probably, uh, it's, it's got to be number one in terms of taking the reins of your, path and as you said showing insane moxie chutzpah craziness to try to control such an uncontrollable aspect of show business you know and yet it worked here's the thing i'm noticing because i i don't know if you've ever done a deep dive in your career over the span of a week but what is i've, I've not not over a week What's uh, what's striking is I am I'm gen and I'm not saying this is like idle flattery. I think this is an interesting phenomenon. I am hard pressed to think of a of somebody who who made their bones in stand up, who has then transitioned back and forth from 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 high prestige drama to comedy to sitcom to continuing to do stand up, um, to doing hosting gigs, which. In the United States, we don't, our hosts are our hosts. We don't let them act as a rule. But, I was a girl who couldn't say no. Oh, uh, well, okay. But here's the thing. <laughs> the girl who can't say no, yeah. it, it, it doesn't always Gets get propositioned <laughs> by both Shandling and Scorsese. So, you know, hang on. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, and yeah, you've no, got to understand there's a distinction there. <laughs> I, I, I'm uh, grateful to have it uh, overviewed as such. Um I have said no on occasion, but <laughs> case, starting out as a stand-up, you know, anytime you get an opportunity for stage time, the answer is yes. Sure. So after A Few Good Men came out in 92 and I went from auditioning to getting offers. Well, let's back up one second here. Okay. Sure. I'm so, just going to say that's when I became a girl who couldn't say no because I came from the mentality of if someone offers you something, the answer is yes. Don't be an asshole. By all means, but how do you even get in the door? Are you the sort of person who goes, hey, I'd like to sort of uh, hedge my bets and, and double my money? Can I go out for more dramas? Can I can I be seen for- no. Uh, no. no, no. This is the apex of my good timing. Okay. This story. Uh, because I was doing a comedy uh, series that no one would see. It's called Morton and Hayes. It's me and uh, Bob Amaral, uh, but it was created by Rob Reiner and Christopher Guest. Oh. It was uh, 1991, the summer 
replacement series. Again, for your listeners, in in the summer of 1991, there was no original programming. The three networks uh, just showed reruns during the summer. Or they would burn off uh, pilots that they weren't going to pick up. They were still doing that in 91. It was a sure. big hallmark of my of my childhood was like, oh, there's this one episode of this weird Dick yeah. Sean plays a vampire sitcom. Right. And now it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was a six episode summer series on CBS. And it would because of Rob Reiner and his arms around Bob Amaral and I in the photograph, it was on the cover of every TV guide supplement aspect of every Sunday Times across the country. A lot of publicity, and then 11 people watched, I think, um, because the premise of it was just so ridiculous. Rob would come out at the beginning of the show and say, hi, I'm Rob Reiner, into camera. Uh, hi, I'm Rob Reiner. Um, you may know me as an actor and all in the family or as a director and Spinal Tap and other films. What you may not know is I've always been a big fan of the comedy teams of the 30s and 40s, Abin Costello, Laurel and Hardy, and of course, my favorite, Chick Morton and Eddie Hayes. Recently, while construction workers are tearing down a foster freeze to make room for a Dairy Queen or vice versa, they discovered a vault filled with old two reelers of Morton and Hayes. We've refurbished them and we'll present one each week. Tonight's entitled Saps at Sea. And he would reach down to a uh, projector and he would turn it on and the light from the projector would fill your screen. And then a two reeler, a 20 minute film in black and white as if made in the 40s would unspool and it was a 1940s uh double act starring in these little movies it was these shorts me and as one character and bob amaral as the other chick morton and eddie hayes but the timing of their bits were from the 40s the mm -hmm. the storylines and everything was from the 40s this might have worked on cable. It was never going to work on CBS in primetime. So it's pretty fucking niche. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but such, yeah. I mean, I think actually it would do really well now, something maybe, like that. Maybe. But, and even um, the great documentary now on IFC uh, is a, oh, little, yeah. a little bit of the throwback film, uh, but brilliant. I, I don't know that. I mean, look. Martin Hayes was um, pretty exceptional for what it was. And I get tweets every now and then from people who have seen it. Anywho, because of this comedy that I was co-starring in, I was having lunch every day with Rob Reiner as he was in pre-production for A Few Good Men. And here's a guy who himself has been, has started in multicam and has now spread his wings and is like, no, they're letting me do drama and I'm going to bring some of my comedy guys Along. Well, that's sort of the, the yeah, I mean, A Few Good Men was a, a huge Broadway sensation yeah. as a play, 500 performances uh, at least, um, you know, toured, continues to play around the country, I hear from people, as a play. Um, and so we're having lunch one day and Rob says, you know, this this movie I'm prepping to do next uh, was a very successful play called A Few Good Men. I've got Tom Cruise as the lead. And I think I'm going to get Jack Nicholson to play this crazy colonel. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but the part of Tom Cruise's character's 
uh, friend and co-counsel. I've got an offer out to Jason Alexander, but if it gets if Seinfeld gets picked up for season two, he won't be available, and you're perfect for this part. Um, so I'm gonna have you, I think, meet Tom and and let's talk about this. Now, for perspective, Seinfeld had aired only four episodes in season one. It was called the Seinfeld Chronicles. It was on Friday night. and It was again, not a lock by any uh, stretch. 11 people were watching. It was yeah. the, the antithesis of what it became uh, in terms of its chances of getting a second season. So I went home and started praying for Jason Alexander's success, and I believe things worked out rather well for both of us. But that's the craziest good fortune. Now, would Rob Reiner have thought of me if I wasn't co-starring in a show that he was working on every week for for two months? I I I no no I don't think so. I think I was in his face. Um, I had done Avalon. I'd done you know a handful of oh, films. That's right. No, you've done Avalon. That's right. That's not yeah. a that's not a particularly light ride. There's there's no, some heavy stuff in Avalon. Yeah, that, it's a very dramatic film. It's a saga. It's a uh, beautiful character- piece, by the way. If my if my listeners haven't haven't uh, seen Avalon, Barry Levinson film, part of his uh, his his Baltimore uh, trilogy, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's a gorgeous piece of work. Yeah, I venture to say, with no objectivity whatsoever, that it's his masterpiece. But uh, uh, I my character was very funny in it, but I just didn't. I ha- I, <laughs> I guess maybe because I had no formal training as a dramatic actor, it all just sort of unfolded. Uh, based on, again, the, the belief of you just audition for everything, um, and and that that moment with Rob absolutely changed my life forever. You know, when you when you you know, I think imposter syndrome is sort of part and parcel in this business, even for people with extensive training, even for people who you know, sure went to went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. But if you come in. With a couple drama credits to do a a courtroom drama opposite Tom Cruise, who is already solidly an icon. This is we're what six seven years after Top Gun, which made him just you he's know, a massive movie fingers. star, massive yeah. fucking movie star at that point. Uh, how did that go? What is what was it like to to come in and because a famously intense guy. He was uh, uh, gregarious. He was uh, instantly treated me like an equal, which was mm. not only unnecessary, it was uh, certainly not expected. Um, he, to this day, maybe the most generous of spirit and time uh, as, a, as, a, as an actor, a, a, a giant movie star. I've worked with many of them now. Um, yeah, yeah, no, he he his intensity and his positive attitude, you know, I had already by 91 had a pretty great bullshit meter. Mm. And um it was the most infectious uh energy and positivity I I think I've ever experienced in a professional setting. Um Yeah, I mean there was a lot of surprises on that movie. Nicholson was a goofball. I did not expect that. I, I thought, this guy's been cool to five generations already. I don't even know how that math works. Uh, it's 100 years, but okay, go ahead. Yeah, he's going to have to be talked about, not to. Oh, right. right. 
he'll be over there, we'll be over here. Um, at the table read, you know, there was there was this ginormous uh, horseshoe design of tables with all the executives and every speaking part in a giant soundstage. And Jack was the last to arrive. And as big of a moment as it was when Tom arrived, there was no real comparison, you know. Jack is Mount Rushmore. Yeah. So he was a big surprise to me and how goofy and silly and, and um, <laughs> just loves being Jack Nicholson and is so good at it. It's so good a, at it. It's uncanny. And there was a moment that Rob Reiner tells when um, they finally got around to shooting Jack's, uh, the courtroom scene with Jack. He only worked five days in the courtroom. I think he worked a total of 10 days. Um, it's the knowledge of this is probably out there for $5 million. He worked 10 days. And I remember thinking when you make half a million dollars a day, do you hit the snooze alarm or oh. do you race into the shower to be, to, to begin that day? There's solid arguments in both directions, really. You know, <laughs> there, there, there's, there's one angle where you're like, you know, I really should hop to, there's a lot of money changing hands. And this is like, well, listen, if I'm, if I'm worth that much, you but know, the, I, I'm not going to hurry up and wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So starting the courtroom scenes with Jack, um, Rob historically uh, went to him and said, look, do you want me to start shooting coverage of, of what you're seeing or coverage on you? If I shoot everyone else, it'll allow you to warm up. You know how this goes, Jack. Which, which would you prefer? And Jack uh, said, yeah, Rob, let's... Uh, Let's let me warm up a little bit. How about that? Uh, we'll start your coverage on the folks. And so that's what they did. Rob set up his cameras on everyone else. And we, we shot from Jack's POV. And what Rob noticed and what all of us noticed was that every take, Nicholson's performance uh, had a level of intensity that you see in the film mm. all off camera. Uh, and after only f five or six, seven of these takes, Rob went over to Jack and said, okay, so I'm going to need you to save a little in the tank, Jack, uh, for when we do put a camera on you. You're you're being incredibly generous to the other actors. And I, I think clearly they all appreciate it, as do I. Um, but I just, you know, why, why are you working so hard? And Jack <laughs> said... Uh, as the story goes, Rob's story, Jack just looked up at him with that Cheshire grin and said, I just love to act, Robbie. Um, mm. So, yeah, he's that guy. And so the That's whole nice. thing, yeah, the whole thing was rather uh, filled with surprises. J.T. Walsh, one of the great character actors no, out of Chicago. J.T. Walsh. Love J.T. Walsh. Plays Markinson. And I, I remember being in his trailer one day and confessing to him that I had no formal training, that this movie... I was like, where's Waldo in this cast? And this was the movie I'd be found out on uh, that I just am not going to cut it. And he said, uh, he was such a great character, very subversive and very um, sort of conspiracy theory guy about most things. And he said, you know, you've, um, I've watched, I've kept an eye on you and you're, you're already doing a technique in acting that people study their whole lives to figure out. You're already doing it. It's called Less is More. Mm -hmm. um you're you're in your mind's eye you're probably just trying to play it real and authentic but it's coming off as that and that takes a real technique to do less 
But I will tell you, there's a second half to that theory of less is more. And the second half is nothing is best. If you can do nothing in a scene and steal focus, you win. <laughs> and so I uh, say kiddingly, but also sincerely, I have now spent a career uh, trying to do nothing in film, on film, until The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, the first time I played a loud, obnoxious Jew, and it's the biggest sensation, clearly in television, I've ever been involved in, but also when all of my friends and significant other all said, it's the role you were born to play, I did not appreciate it. No, that's rude. That's really weird. That's a strange thing to say to someone. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, I mean, I'm channeling Lou Jacoby from Avalon, by the way. You cut the turkey, oh, but I'm me. We leave. Yeah. Yeah. yeah God, 100%. You are, aren't you? That's so 100%. interesting. I usually save this for later in the, in the show. But since we're talking about J.T. Walsh, Walsh anyway, of whom I was a big fan um, uh, and who was so good at small. He actually has a death scene in A Few Good Men that is brutal in its simplicity uh he gets into his full military dress and kills himself and and you don't you just see him get dressed in this rainy hotel room and you have no idea what's going on and suddenly the gun's in his fucking mouth and it's it's brutal but you just this is a man who's just fallen apart and is on autopilot and knows too much and, and knows that he's not gonna be able to live with it and goes out like a soldier he's so he's so heartbreaking in that scene were there other guys coming up, um, other other character actors, other supporting guys that you would look at and be like, oh, man, I, I could just watch that guy. Maybe guys who were also doing very little and, and still drawing the eye. Yeah, of course. Always. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think one of the things that drew me to acting or wanting to according to my mom, ever since I was maybe five, and she would take me to the movies, I would come out of the movie with her in a zealot kind of fashion as one of the characters in the film, not doing an impersonation of the actor, but uh, possessed uh, by a character from the film. And I remember walking to school at that young of an age, thinking there was a camera in front of me moving backwards and I was being filmed. The walk to school was a, a, a moment. That, that was my let's pretend, you know, the stories of Marty Short tells in the documentary, I think, uh, Misery Loves Comedy, about being in his attic and yeah. acting out all these scenes. And uh, so I remembered the walk to school was was a scene in the film. What what I have to ask, and I bet you have an answer. Who was scoring it? <laughs> That's a great question, and it's hilarious. And um, you know, I I've never given it any thought. So I, my true. answer I don't think that's true. I don't my answer would true. be flippant. I, well, at age five, I wasn't scoring the picture yet. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. In hindsight, are yeah. you an are you an Ennio Morricone five year old? What's your story? <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. I, I mean, I mean, uh, I I'm almost of mind to do the Tarantino needle drop throughout the film uh, than that being scored because um, that's certainly how cool I thought I was. Yeah. Uh, so I think I've always sort of collected these character actors and then working with Matthew and Lemon and the Grumpy Old Men movies, they, they might've been two of my favorite character actors who became movie stars, 
but they were character actors through and through. And I would argue, and I think Brad Pitt would agree, that he's a phenomenal character actor. That's a really um, good point. You know, I, yeah. I, his ability to walk away with a small part early in his career, I'm thinking specifically of True Romance, which as far as I'm concerned is his Oscar role with all due respect to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, his, his couch locked stoner. He literally does not stand up in that film and steals every scene he's in from Gandolfini <laughs> from incredible actors. He's so strong in that. That's, you know, yeah, I can't believe we're saying like, you know, it's time Brad Pitt got his due. <laughs> well, but his due as a character actor. And by the way, when I think of character actors, I don't necessarily think of small parts. I just think of as supporting parts. Yeah. Um, who aren't above the title selling tickets. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, hey, I know you. You were on a horsey. Um, <laughs> I, I love every square inch and every frame and every sound and of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for the too. record. For the I record. Could not, I saw it three times in theaters. I haven't done that since fucking 1977 in Star Wars. I yeah. don't know what it was. Because yeah. it's funny because as much as it's a love letter to the movie business, it's really a love letter to the TV business, which is my bread yes. and butter. Yes. And I'm just watching this guy go from guest star to guest star and yeah. having the rare occurrence of working one day and airing that night, which has happened to me twice in a career. <laughs> and it's <Yeah>. incredible. <laughs> I've heard tell that the original cut was four hours and I just pray he releases it somehow, somewhere. Sign me up. Shoot it into my veins. I'll go see that three times. I don't give a shit. I love yeah. that movie. And it also, um, it's also fun when he's got Nicholas Hammond as Sam Wanamaker. What? I know. <laughs> Lemon and Mathau are are of that ilk where you could look like a scruffy character guy and be Or in Mathau's case- or in Matthew's case, looked like a basset hound. I mean, and he had that face as a young man. It, uh, I know. Yeah. You go back it, to face in the crowd, he looks like that. He's so, the oldest looking 30-year-old in, 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 history. in history. Yeah. Although other than Burgess Meredith, I think there's an yeah. argument there. <laughs> Burgess um, Meredith was born geriatric, and we were just lucky to have him as long as we did. Yeah. And I was lucky to work with him twice on those Grumpy Old Men movies, because he yeah, really was. And also get to God, that's jokes. right. He was so old, he played Matthew's dad. That's right. I'd forgotten that. <laughs> and wasn't much older in real life, but of course looked. Uh, but I, in the outtakes of the Grumpy Old Men, he does a lot of different jokes when he's looking out the window alluding to what he'd like to sexually do. And so I was on set and the director was saying, what else you got? And I was literally riffing. And then Burgess Meredith was saying, I'll take, I don't remember his voice, but I like to take the, you know, whatever it was, skin boat to Tuna Town. You're definitely cutting that. But I, but it's in the movie. It's in the optics. <laughs> I could just, they just kept giving him all these and to see this, you know, this icon. So, so yeah, Methow and Lemon had these careers where you were allowed to do the silliest comedy and also the most intense drama. So, in terms of going and you back, could be a romantic lead. Methow was a romantic lead when I was growing up, which fucked me up for life, obviously, because sure, you know, I, I go into this career and I'm like, oh, but great, that's you know, house calls, hopscotch, hopscotch. Yeah. He's a romantic lead and a fucking spy. <laughs> Yeah. What does that tell a young character actor about yeah. like the possibilities? Well, it it was great 
because those possibilities were endless. And I don't At know the that time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that that's happening as much. So I went, I studied at the feet of those comedians who went on Tonight Show and sat next to Johnny and made him laugh. And by the way, that first time on with him, when I'm standing behind that curtain with Macaulay and I'm hearing the band wind down from the commercial that they were playing through and it comes to the intro and Johnny says, uh, welcome back, folks. My next guest is uh, he's an actor. He's got a new movie out. Uh, Ron Howard, director called Willow. We'll talk about that. Uh, I also I, I understand he's a comedian, so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Please welcome Kevin Pollack. And I had practiced walking through those curtains so many times in my mind. And so one of the questions was, do I that I had for myself, do I wave to Doc? Because all of my heroes, when they came through that curtain, would wave to Doc. And I thought, this is your first time on the show asshole don't wave you don't know doc you don't know doc no the audience knows you don't know doc so even if you did know doc you're not waving get and also get over to the fucking couch (laughs) you've just been introduced the king is standing at his throne waiting for you so i got over there and johnny would lean over the desk momentarily shaking the my hand or the guest hand as they would then sit to his right and we sat down I guess it's on YouTube, or so I've been told. And he says, uh, now, Kevin, welcome to the show. Uh, you're in this new film, Willow, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Somebody told me that you do impersonations. Is that right? Now, there's a pre-interview, spoiler alert. And Jim McCauley says to me, how do you want Johnny to set up your impressions? And that was pretty much verbatim what I had sort of said. Have him say, you're in this new movie to establish that in the audience's mind. And then have him say, but first, I understand you do impersonations without setting up, do you do Peter Falk's Columbo, right? Just, I understand you do impressions. And he was flawless, as he always was in those (laughs) Carson segues and intros. Now, somebody told me, I got so comfortable on the show with him that I eventually, when he said, now, somebody told me. I interrupted him and said, who told you? And he smacked my my arm and said, never you mind. It was one of my all-time favorite moments. So, But the first time, the first time when he said, now somebody told me you you do impersonations. Is that right? Without missing a beat, I launched into Peter Falk as if Peter Falk was sitting on that couch. And I realized now, oh, once again, I'm more comfortable as Peter Falk than I am as myself. When everyone's staring and I just launched into, excuse me, Johnny, I hate the body. Jeez, I don't want to be a patient. And he laughed so hard. He was clutching his chest, pushing himself away from the desk. You know, that Carson thing. Yeah. And I, I only brought it up again because the, I don't think I got to the outcome, which was my evil plan that I orchestrated, that I took the reins of my life and career led to that moment. And it went so well that he had me back on the show two or three times a year until he retired. And I know that it was because, moreover, more importantly than what I had laid out, I knew as a fan of him and the show that A, and maybe most importantly, he loved Peter Falk. Not an impression Mm -hmm. of him. He loved Peter Falk. Peter was on all the time, all the time. He could not get enough of Peter. He was fascinated by Peter's odd um, style and of speaking and 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 storytelling. Speaking of unconventional leading men, hundred uh, percent Academy Award nominee for Murder Incorporated as a character actor. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, work with Cassavetes brilliantly. Yeah. Yeah. And also about six months after that first Tonight Show of Carson seeing me do that Peter Falk impression and and losing it, I was accosted in the produce section at Ralph's by Peter Falk, who had seen the appearance and said, how do you do that with your eye? Do you mind me asking? I mean, me, I understand, but how do you do that? I had, in fact, trained myself to move just one eye. Uh, because Peter Falk was very open about having a glass eye. Um, I remember reading in TV Guide, he told stories about being young. He had he was a car accident at age three and had a glass eye ever since. And, he, and one story I remember, he was playing Little League and he slid into second base and the ump called him out. And he stood up as an 11-year-old, dusted himself off, popped out the eye, handed it to the ump and said, you clearly need this more than I do. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Oh so. So Peter Falk actually asked me, why do I do that? With Then my second time on The Tonight Show, Macaulay says, Johnny wants you to teach him how to do the one eye movie. Can you teach him how to do that? I said, yeah, it's a trick. I figured it out. I, of course I can teach him. So I taught Carson how to make one eye move. Now I had seen Anne Bancroft uh, has a cameo in her husband Mel Brooks's film uh, maybe to be or not to be or silent she's, move what something there's a close up oh, she has a, she has a short role she's she's huge in to be or not to be she's she's the romantic she's the uh, carol lombard in that um okay yeah, well, I, think it's, a, I think it's a silent movie yeah there's a close up of her and she does this with her eyes oh my god oh right yes and when i saw her do that i said if you isolate one half she is, if these are your eyes, they don't normally stick this far out of your head. And you cross them and then look to the left and then cross them and then look to the left and then cross them and then look to the left. It looks like just one eye is moving. And that is all I'm doing, sir. So that is what I showed Johnny. And he did it as he threw it to commercial. Excuse me, folks. And he crossed the eye. And then I have to mention this. Every single time I was on The Tonight Show after that, and he would introduce me, and I, I did wave to Doc, and I would pass in front of his desk for that nanosecond when he was standing there shaking your hand, you know, unlike Jay, who danced out from behind the desk to greet the guest. Hey, good to see you. How are you? The king <laughs> stood at the fucking throne, yeah. and he would pass in front of him. He would shake your hand. But every time after that second appearance when I taught Carson how to do the one eye, and, I, and in that nanosecond of him shaking my hand, he leaned over the desk, crossed one eye as I was seating, sitting and said, excuse me, I hate the body. Now, that was inarguably in, in the most nerve wracking six minutes of any year. Johnny Carson was saying to me as I sat down, we have an inside joke. Welcome back. Have a seat. Oh, my God. And the brilliance of, I promise he probably did something similar with all the guests that he liked. And then that was the greatest compliment you could ever receive from a comedian or a friend who watched the appearance. The greatest compliment was not that bit worked, this bit did well. The greatest compliment was Johnny loves you. Johnny yeah. really likes you. And we, whatever, however this goes down tonight, I'm your guy. You know, whatever, if God forbid this is the wrong crowd or whatever, I'm your guy. That's got to have been uh, amazing. Uh, it's funny. It all kind of sigs around here because you, yeah. you work with Rickles, who was another Carson stalwart on, uh, and a hero. on 
and and yeah rickles god i loved rickles rickles yeah. was a, a special kind and and was starting to do a bunch more dramatic work but casino's an outlier anyway because i had forgotten how many funny people are in that movie not really allowed to be that funny you're in there and rickles is in there i forgot one of the fucking smothers brothers is a corrupt senator Tommy, in that Tommy smothers Tommy smothers allen in there Alan King. Alan King is in there. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that that Scorsese did on purpose? Was there a sense of like we're gonna we're gonna put these comedic guys just to kind of put everyone on edge in the film? I've heard two versions. One from Alan Lewis's casting, longtime casting director, that he loved comedians. Mm-hmm. Uh, King of Comedy certainly suggests as much, and he also has used comedians in his other films. Ileana Douglas uh, is a friend. And we've done a film together. Oh, we got to get Ileana Douglas. I'm sorry. I'm just I'm writing this write down frantically. Down. Oh, my God. I adore her. I'm sure she would love to come on. She has amazing stories. But she also insists, and you'll have to ask her, that because she was dating Scorsese at the time, right. she had his ear when he was casting Casino and said to him, you have to hire this funny person. You have to hire this funny person. You have to. She took credit for me being in the film. <laughs> you know, she bu- she burst my my complete bubble that that it was Scorsese's idea, um, but because it was an offer. You know, my agent called up and said, "We talk about a year." I'm on the set of the shooting the Usual Suspects, and my oh agent my, my agent contacts me and says, "Martin Scorsese would like you to be in his next film that shoots in Vegas." Features Vegas, written by Nick Pileggi, who wrote Goodfellas, starring De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Sharon Stone. So that that's one of those, oh, you can take me now moments. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, there were a lot of funny people in that, and and um, I, you know, we didn't, we never, I never talked about it with uh, Scorsese, but I did become very good friends with Rickles during that and um oh man he he uh he shared with me early on he said i i own de Niro. i said what do you mean he said well believe it or not when de Niro grew up he was in a put down group uh on the street corners there were two types of social gatherings among men his age young men they were doo-wop Groups who would stand on the street corners and sing, and they were put down groups. Your mother this, your mother that. They would uh, play the dozens. As play we the would dozens. Say. Yeah. Play the dozens, indeed. And to those, to that group, Rickles was God. Sure, of course. And Rickles says this to me that he knows this, and he says, "Therefore, I'm telling you, I own this guy." Sure enough, on the set. He would go after De Niro. First of all, you have to understand when De Niro walks on set, every sphincter tightens. It's an audible sound. And in the middle of, I don't know, 150 crew, 100 extras, the wedding scene, uh, Rickles is standing next to De Niro. De Niro is acting. In the middle of the take, while De Niro is speaking his dialogue, Scorsese's watching, camera's rolling, Rickles would turn on him. Is that the way you're going to do it? Like that? No, no. You got the awards. I'm sure you know what you're doing. Go ahead. <laughs> and, you know, the rest of us are like, oh, shit. And But De Niro, <laughs> he, his shoulders going nuts. He laughed uncontrollably. 
And Rickles was right. He owned him. De Niro loved when Rickles just ripped into him, which Rickles, of course, then did at the drop of a hat. Uh, for the record, Pesci was not a fan. Of Rickles. When Rickles also went after Pesci. Oh, interesting. The, the first and only time. And Pesci, mm. shut it, Pesci shut it down. When Rickles pointed out in front of everyone that Joe was so short, he was going to ride him around the set like a Shetland pony. Uh, and Pesci basically said, Oh, you're a fucking riot. No, I get it. I get it. I'm a midget and you're a genius. Go fuck yourself. Uh, yeah and then i now is is that joe in character or is that just that's probably just that's okay that's joe as himself and that's a quote i i refuse to be called out uh when i offer up a quote involving words that people no longer accept uh rightfully uh but i also saw (laughs) pesci walking to his trailer after that scene still mumbling to himself about how upset he was with that fucking jew prick cocksucker fuck him and I said, hey, Joe, he was just kidding around. And he turned on me and said, oh, yeah, no. you're another one. The two of you, go fuck yourself. Yeah, great. I great. love that Joe Pesci is, uh, this is what, it is a shoots 94 for release in 95, right? Indeed. Uh-huh. So I love that Joe Pesci, who is coming off of, uh, he's coming off of Goodfellas, he's coming off of Home Alone, he is coming off of the Lethal Weapon uh, yep. franchise. No sense of humor. S- suddenly the least funny person in the room. I love that. That's hilarious yeah. to me. I've got a couple recent things I want to talk about. Um, you brought up Maisel anyway. Maisel's a hell of a piece of work. Um, I, I love the show. It's It's got this weird authenticity where it's not necessarily trying to say this is what the 60s were like, but it's sort of like this is what the 60s idea of the 60s was like. This is how the 60s presented itself at the time. It looks sort of like a big Doris Day pastel, brightly colored uh, uh, piece of work, um, which is yeah, interesting. Yeah, certainly you're right. It, but I would take it one step further and say – it's Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino's idea of how the 60s presented themselves. It's a heightened pace. It's a heightened yeah. Um, yeah. cinematography. Yeah. And as such, there's some, there's some heightened acting to it. You, you've sure. said that, it's the, that people are telling you it's the role uh, you were born to play. That's not for me to say, but how do you, how do you, uh, let's say it isn't, how do you adjust? <laughs> well, it's the hardest work I've ever done and the most rewarding, that's for sure, without really? exaggeration, because um, as much as I love improvising and the opportunities to do so, in fact, she does I not still, have it famously, so she will not have that. Yeah, can't change a syllable. Now, I work great in both ways. When we did A Few Good Men, I mean, I, now when I say I work great in both, I mean, from my own perspective, I don't mean I do great work. I mean, I'm fine doing uh, either version of the, you get to improvise or you better be letter perfect. Fugenman was a play, even though some adjustments were made from the play to the screenplay, they were both written by Aaron Sorkin and Rob Reiner. And even though Aaron was quite young during the shooting of A Few Good Men, um, Rob Reiner wanted very religiously to stick to the word, uh, don't change a syllable. Whereas The Usual Suspects, which won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay, 
almost every line I'm quoted back by fans of the film, I improvise. And in fact, to this day, insist that Christopher McQuarrie, while he's doing brilliant work writing and directing the Mission Impossible movies, two more to come, um, did the last two. Uh, you know, he was 26-year-old, wrote this brilliant script, but I had freedom. Yeah. And I would like the Oscar to sit on my shelf one out of 52 weeks. That's all I'm asking. And I think that it's reasonable. That seems fair. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He, and this is lifetime. And I'm going to say mine, much shorter than his. Yeah. You should have, um, you should have uh, at the very least, visitation rights. <laughs> That's if you improvise a on a, if you improvise, lawyer up, fuck it. Um, you, you, <laughs> if you improvise on a, on a film, improvise on a film that wins the best screenplay Oscar. I'm yeah. now thinking that like I'm I'm going back through the film in my head. There's a moment where uh, an actor who let's just not mention uh, identifies himself as uh, being named Verbal. He hasn't. It's the first line he says in the film, and your You've, line is something to the effect of. Yeah, I was going to tell you to shut up, and you're 100 percent correct. That was improvised. Also, in that same scene, I the first time, the first time, the brilliant Benicio del Toro speaks. My character. Uh, says, what the fuck did he just say? <laughs> Not in the script. In fact, in fact, if I may be totally please, honest. Please, please. Uh, that's not even me improvising. That was me breaking the scene. <laughs> that was Kevin Pollack, not Todd Hockney. That was Kevin Pollack saying to the director, what the fuck did he just say? Because- How much of, okay, go ahead. It was decided- that for that first setup with all of us together in the lockup, they didn't tell us what Benicio was going to do. Now, there's only one take of that, of let's, let's find out what happens here. Um, you know, when Brian Singer asked me to do the film, there were two roles left, the one that Benicio did and the one that I did. And he said, which of these two do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't want to do that one um, because that character only is only in the film, spoiler alert, to die as a way to tell the other suspects, you can't run from Kaiser Soze. That, right. that character has no moments. That character has no um, scenes or, or, or doesn't change any anything about this film he's mcmanus's sidekick it's a thankless part and um <laughs> so i'm gonna do this one and then benicio as fenster steals every scene he's in that's how brilliant he is so i just want to make a point of that the um the the scene in uh the lineup not the lockup but the the poster image the scene of all of you yep. guys in in the lineup where you're all supposed to do the same the same sentence so they can do a voice ID is riddled with a spontaneity that makes me suggest that I am not even sure all of you guys know the fucking cameras rolling. There's just such a, there's so much life to that scene of these five guys who have been in lineups before. And uh, it, it's got, so I'm taking, I'm, I'm gathering that a lot of this was just in the moment stuff because you're swatting at each other and, and Baldwin is hitting Del Toro. There's a bunch of shit going on in that scene. Yeah. That's once, not on the page. Once again, uh, Christopher McQuarrie, who got an Academy Award for Best Screenplay, really needs to. He wrote that scene as a very somber, a very straightforward, 
each uh, criminal in the lineup and or co-star of the film is to not be impressed that they've been gathered thusly by the police and read the line with sort of a straightforward go fuck yourself, which if I may, is how I, the first one to, or littlest suspect, the first one to read from the card in the lineup, I read it as it was written in the script. Just matter of factly, go fuck yourself. And then all hell breaks loose. And it breaks loose because the other actors decided not to do it as scripted. Uh, read it, the words that are there, but, but put their own twist on, to the point where we couldn't stop laughing. And at lunch, it was the only time that the director came to We the Suspects and says, you guys are fucked. I've got not a frame I can use from the first half of the day. We, yep. (laughs) And that was like telling nine-year-olds don't laugh at the funeral. We went right back after lunch. (laughs) We went right back after lunch and continued laughing and fucking off. I tell the story that I think Benicio farted seven takes in a row, which is a very special gift. You've got to pace yourself. You can't, it's really, so, um, you know, the director at the end of the day threw up his hands, said, thanks guys. Great. Just terrific. Thanks for nothing. And went back to editing and created a scene out of outtakes. That is the exact intent of the written scene, which was all of us, fuck you to the police, we're not impressed that you arrested us. That's that's now, you know, that iconic scene. Um, and to my co-star's credit, they chose another route other than the one Chris McQuarrie wrote or that I performed as the first person reading the card as a way to say to the, but the point was we just couldn't stop laughing and we couldn't get through it without laughing. There's a moment where I think Gabriel sort of covers his face. He's, he can't help it. So yeah, it's the same an instant camaraderie for these guys who just met. Yeah, it is. Who've just met and who we have just met. We as an audience member need to understand why we should possibly care about this group of sociopaths. Yeah. You know, what, 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 where is our skin in the game? Like, oh, they're incredibly like it works much the same way parts of Goodfellas work is that, you know, you see these people enjoy each other and it makes us want to hang out with them, which is, it's an interesting, uh, kind of phenomenology. I don't know. I don't know why I got off of, um, why I steered us away from Maisel so quickly, but the idea that she wants um, things letter perfect, uh, it was easy for me to adapt to that because it happened on A Few Good Men, even though it it wouldn't be my preference. Now I'm introduced to a part of theater where I have zero training and experience, which is the oneer. And Amy Sherman and Dan Palladino have reimagined what an eight to ten page oneer is, and the f- and the show has become synonymous with the oneer. And uh, what that means is, I have to, you know, my character doesn't listen. So the scenes that I'm in, he's just talking, and I'm used to looking at a page of a script that I'm in, and at the beginning of a eight-page scene, I say to Tom Cruise's character, what do you think we should do? And then he speaks for eight pages, during which I say, mm-hmm, uh-huh, okay. And at the end of which I say, all right, let's go. 
and that's my experience of an eight-page scene that is not shot in one. It may be done in a master to have that option, but it's never intended, and there's coverage from every angle. So when you have to do it in one take, um, you you have to study it like a piece of theater, which was just, I'm not agreeing for the record that I became a lazy actor who never had to do that. I'm just saying for the record, I'm a lazy actor who never had to do that. And uh, It's my, choreography. It's choreography, and there's 14 pieces that are moving, and you don't want to be the reason where you know, someone's saying, cut, start again. Um, and as I said, my character doesn't listen, so it'll be someone else, me, someone else, me, on the page for dialogue, which is just not what I'm used to. So the most challenging, the most rewarding, uh, for sure, we're just finishing up season four right now. Um, we've been shooting since early January, and um, I'm happy to report it is still a love fest. Everyone still cares very much about each other. We love each other as a cast and crew, and and that also, I'm guessing, is a miracle. What's amazing about, about uh, and I've, I've done, you know, maybe three wonders in my life is that the wonders are the one thing where like you don't get a groove going necessarily the longer you get into a long shot the scarier it gets because if you fuck it up seven pages in you're the biggest asshole on set and after 10 takes at it yeah you know so you we'll, fuck up on the first page fine back to what it's right there no yeah, no biggie hey exactly the world right. keeps turning <laughs> yeah and so we're doing them several times an episode you know, it's not just a wonder. No, it's not. They 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 do. There's there's stuff that they do in that uh, those Catskills episodes that made my head hurt. Yeah, where it, it almost takes it. You know, I envy my in laws who watch the show and like, oh, I remember the Catskills. The Catskills were like that new, and there's like no <laughs> idea of the technique going behind it. While the rest of my wife and I are sitting there, going, oh, oh god, <laughs> this must have been so. Oh god, how yeah. do you even light this? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's rarefied air, and I think one of the reasons there's a love fest going on is that everyone working on the show has a similar sense of awareness of the rarefied air, um, especially the the older, uh, more experienced of us. Well, you get those casts sometimes where you've got a mix of people who are super new or have really are real veterans. And if you're lucky, the new people are like, oh my God, I can't believe I lucked into this. And the, the, the veterans are like, no, this really isn't, this is special. This is four seasons is something. That's impressive. <laughs> it's crazy, yeah. Also, I just haven't really been a part of something that was in the zeitgeist. Uh, only after the oh, fact. in terms of TV, in terms of TV. Well, ever while while I was working, right, right, right. Usual Suspects. People may not believe this, but it only made a little over twenty million at the box office when it came out. The distribution was completely botched. It was only in I think eight hundred screens at most. It feels like everybody and their mom was talking about it. I mean, granted, I'm, I I was living in New York. I grew up there, and that's a certain media ecology there, I guess. But I'm very surprised to hear it did. It killed on video, though. Once it came out on video. Oh no, it's had five special edition DVDs over the years that make Gabriel Byrne very angry because um, we had a pretty shitty deal 
all of us. We got <laughs> we got basically paid coffee and donuts, and our our net point, weirdly, after many hundreds of thousands of many hundreds of millions made from from VHS and DVD, I have not seen a dime. Um, but those things became a part of the zeitgeist. Few good men, certainly part of the zeitgeist. You know, there's certain aspects casino over the years. But to be working on something while it's in the zeitgeist is not something I've ever experienced. Um, people speaking different languages, accosting me, asking, want to talk about it um, while I'm still working on this thing. That's a nice shot in the arm to go back to work being like, oh, this thing that I'm doing right now, people are enjoying right yeah. now. Yes. Yeah. I mean, listen, 20 Emmys in three seasons, that also kind of helps secure doesn't hurt secure um but who's I'm, counting yeah first of all it's not a competition i don't even know why i brought it up wait <laughs> yeah no it it the whole thing it's just it's it's bizarre it's um beautifully unique uh and again rarefied air good fortune that i was that i'm able to be a part of it i mean i'm acutely aware of that in closing do you do either Lemon or Mathau? I made the mistake of doing Walter Mathau to Walter Mathau. I, that's one thing Ooh, I avoid. I understood there were a couple different versions of Mathau who could show up. I've heard some stories. Yeah, he didn't have the best reputation over the years. He certainly had one by the time I worked with him. I mean, he certainly was a gas to be around by then because he was oh, uh, quite elderly. I, I avoid doing the person for the person like the plague. Uh, obviously yeah there's i it took me probably 25 years to realize that doing an impersonation is a parlor trick in that if i can figure out someone you like and i can recreate them in front of you i will steal the affection you have for the actual person it's a weird dynamic and it's magic when it works so if the actual person's there i'm just the monkey talking um so that's why I've always avoided it. And also they never hear it. Alan Arkin's the only exception. He he loves it, hears it, has said to me after seeing me perform live at backstage, you know what? I'm gonna, I've decided I'm gonna stop stammering. I don't like the way it sounds. Can I be honest with you? When you when you I I don't huh. It it doesn't make any sense. Who talks like that? It's crazy. Um and so I did get so comfortable with Walter Walter Matthau that at one point I said, you know, I got to say it. I'm sorry. I just got to say it. But the, the moment in The Odd Couple when you take the bowl of uh, pasta or spaghetti, the argument goes, and you throw it against the wall and say, no, it's garbage. Uh, has always stayed with me, and it's just so beautiful. It's just such a great choice. I don't know whose it was, but you know, hoping to get a story. Instead, I got no R, kid. It's garbage. So he heard the impression and corrected the spelling or pronunciation. There's no R. There's no R, kid. It's garbage. No, it's garbage. Favorite moment with him, just in closing, uh, we were working together when Marissa Tomei won the Academy Award. And you probably remember there's a little bit of controversy. She was yeah. up against four 
exceptionally touted, brilliant British actresses. Vanessa Redgrave being among them, if memory serves. Uh, yep. Joan Plowright. Fucking uh, Yeah. It was four. And Marissa Tomei, who's lovely and wonderful and exceptionally talented. But, you know, the movie's uh, what it is. I mean, it was such a controversy. There was even talk that Jack Pounce read the wrong name. I mean, it was a whole thing. But It was a shit show. It yeah. was a real shit show at the time, yeah. I, I think there's a little bit of anti-comedy snobbery going through I agree. that controversy. I agree, and but, certainly but if, continue. You're, if you're a, bet, a betting person and, and or you understand math, the four British actresses easily canceled each other out. There are a myriad yeah. reasons why yeah. Mr. Tomei's name was read. But in the gathering of actors, Jack and Walter shared a giant suite in a hotel in Minneapolis where we shot because when their front people went to get them the best room in town, there was only one. And they argued, the reps argued over who was going to get it until they found out there was a bedroom at the other end. And the odd couple lived together while we were shooting. Yes. What? Exactly. And there was a there was a baby grand in the in the center of this thing and Jack Lemmon would play beautifully the few times they had us over. Well, one of these times was to watch the Academy Awards that year. And and the winner and everyone was talking and when the mention of the nominations, uh, I worked with Joan Plowright and Avalon and people are talking about who they when they worked with the other British actresses. Judy Davis was one of the, those actresses, I just remember. Um, right, yeah. And the winner is Marissa Tomei. So now there's an explosion from the we know more than you do actors and actresses gathered at, in this suite watching the show uh, that I was present of. Uh, and people are just, this is not fair and cacophony. And the whole time, Walter is seated in a chair, a nice comfy leather chair about four feet from the TV. And he's just staring straight ahead. He's the only one who seems unmoved by this. I mean, everyone is just up in arms. There's a flailing of arms. It all finally settles down. And Walter, in his comedic timing brilliance, waited for the first moment of silence to say, I'll sell my Oscar for five cents. <laughs> that, was, that was his beautifully timed protest. <laughs> and scene. Kevin Pollack, thank you so, so much for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, this, uh, please come back and 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 talk some more. We didn't touch on Mom. Uh, we, there's a ton of stuff. I, I mean, the death scene on Mom alone is an episode unto itself. Please mm -hmm. come back. I'll, I would like to. You know, fortunately, your producer and I are longtime friends, and he reached out to me in an email and said this was an opportunity to talk about myself, and he knew that's all he had to say. And that is an episode wrap on Kevin Pollock. You can follow him on Twitter at Kevin Pollock, on Instagram at Kevin Pollock123, and check out his improvised podcast, Alchemy This. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? <laughs>